glad we sang that last verse before this message today. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 3, and this chapter, uh, we're not going to cover it all in one Sunday, but there is so much uh, of the glory of God on display in this passage, and we have to acknowledge that there are aspects of the glory of God that in the darkness of our eyes, as we um, have transitioned by the grace of God into life in Him through salvation, and then, you know, the already and the not yet, we, we are already bought, we are already redeemed, we are, our salvation is secure because of the work of God, the grace of God, and yet, we don't yet see all that is. And at the end of that verse, who is perfect? Whose understanding is perfect? Whose knowledge is perfect? It's not mine. It's not any of ours. That belongs to God. And so as we look into this passage, that would be my prayer, that we would uh, walk into and through this passage praying that our eyes would be open to truth, that we would have uh, humble hearts as we go through these, these words and these ideas, and uh, that God would be glorified uh, by our uh, eagerness to see him and to learn of him in this passage. Now, uh, last week, one of the things that we learned about was the omniscience of Jesus. Remember in John two twenty five, John wrote that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew of the sincerity or the lack thereof of the faith of every person. Of every person. And today we're going to have an illustration of that. Uh, we're going to see that knowledge on display. In John 3 and verse 1, it says, Now there was a man. So at the end of chapter 2, it says, Jesus knew what was in man. And John 3 starts with, Now there was a man. And it was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was a member of what was called the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin was a, a group of 70 uh, religious and political leaders. So uh, Nicodemus would not have just been any old Pharisee. He would have been a Pharisee of Pharisees. And the Sanhedrin was made up of mostly Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, different uh, factions, if you will, within what was called Second Temple Judaism at the time. And so Nicodemus is a powerful man. He would have been considered to be a very godly man. He certainly was a very knowledgeable man concerning the law, the Old Testament. Okay? Now, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night, seemingly to avoid detection from his colleagues, and said to him, Rabbi. A rabbi means teacher. This would have been a, a term of respect to start your questioning or your statements with. To call him rabbi right out of the gate uh, takes the edge off a little bit, hopefully. And, and Nicodemus is, in a sense, offering this olive branch to Jesus by calling him rabbi first. Does that make sense? It's better than saying, hey, you, at the beginning of the statement. Uh, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Uh, when Nicodemus saw the signs, it led him to assume that perhaps Jesus was at least a teacher, or maybe at most a teacher, but sent by God nonetheless. And, and Jesus, though, is, we know, far more than a teacher. 
Definitely a great teacher, but far more than just a teacher. It's as if Nicodemus is trying to assume the best about Jesus as far as he's willing to go. Does that make sense? Uh, Which is to hope that Jesus will be content with the role of teacher. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, calls him rabbi, and says, Oh, it's obvious that you are a teacher. Right, Jesus? Is that what you are? Uh, But Jesus will not be content with anything less than who he really is. Verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly. And truly, truly in the Greek literally is amen, amen. That means so be it or truth. So he's putting these words right back to back. When Jesus puts these words together, it means that he's about to drop a truth bomb. Okay? Uh, The following content must be heard, must be understood, must be believed. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, The kingdom of God is the kingdom that Jesus was bringing because Jesus is who? He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And this is the truth that Nicodemus is trying to avoid. He wants him to just be a teacher. Now, as an Old Testament scholar and Jewish religious leader, uh, the kingdom of God would have been exactly what Nicodemus longed for. But the way Nicodemus and the way the Jews imagined the kingdom and their Messiah and the way they viewed Jesus, those were not the same Thing. This is not the kingdom they were looking for. This was not the Messiah they were looking for. Realize Nicodemus has been working now for most of his life to become who he now is, to become the prominent man that he was at this point uh, when he's speaking with Jesus. He had worked hard to become a Pharisee. He'd worked hard to become a member of the Sanhedrin. And it would have been great for the Messiah to come and see him And be amazed. And to congratulate him. And say, wow, Nicodemus! You're amazing! You did it! Congratulations! But that wasn't happening. That's not the message that Jesus brought. Instead, Jesus even tells him just now, you must be born again. And so, uh, try to step into Nicodemus' shoes right here and imagine what you might have been going through in your mind. Uh, Would you, for instance, like to have graduated from high school or from college uh, to walk across the stage, be handed, you thought, a diploma or a degree and told, you must be enrolled again? That'd be a bummer, wouldn't it? Uh, Would you like to have gone to your retirement party, perhaps, or looking forward to your retirement party, and to hear your boss say, you must be hired again? Maybe anybody might be helping you with your retirement. You must invest again. That would not be a great thing to hear. The coming of the Messiah was supposed to be the crowning moment for the Jewish leaders. Now think about what I just said. Think about this. The coming of the Messiah was supposed to be the crowning moment for the who? It seems as though they thought it was their crowning moment, but what's the Messiah? The king? Whose crowning moment was it supposed to be? Messiah. He's the king, right? And so part of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in this passage is that none of his work, 
none of his efforts have accomplished anything that he wanted them to accomplish. Self-centered religiosity, self-centered religion will only result in worship that is centered on the self. Self-centered religion results in self-worship. Realize God made us to be worshipers. We are always worshiping. Always. We think of worship, we think of right now. We think of Sunday morning and we go off to church and we sing songs and we shake hands and we smile and we talk with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we uh, give in the offering and we, and we hear preaching and we shake hands again and we go home. We think worship. Everything you do stems from worship. When you leave today and you go home and you do whatever you do or you go to a restaurant this afternoon or, or the way that you even go to bed, the way that you get up tomorrow and go to work, all of it stems from worship. Whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, do it all to the glory of God. All of it's worship. All of it's worship. And so when I come worshiping myself, what do I expect things to appease or to please? My self. My pleasures, my interests. When we live this way, we will always miss the glory of God. We will always miss the goodness of God. When we think of the idea of going to heaven and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, just as a litmus test for us, as a diagnostic, what are we, what are we looking for in that? Well done, good and faithful servant. Yes, I agree. Or are we humbled at the holiness of our God and remember that the reason why I did any of that was because of his grace in the first place. So when he would say, well done, good and faithful servant, to me all praise and glory would go right back to where it belongs. We, The darkness of our eyes, sometimes we cannot see the glory of our God and the goodness that he gives to us. And so it's good for us to be humbled and to think rightly about these things. Now, the Greek word here for again, of born again, the word can be translated as again or from above. It could either mean again or from above, so that it would say you must be born again, or it would say you must be born from above. And it's not because Greek is insufficient, it's just, it's just what's called a homonym. Here's some English examples. The word lie. What does lie mean? Without context, I'm not giving you any context. What does lie mean? There's a couple things it could mean, right? Two examples. One would be, I'm lying to you about something. I told you that uh, today's Saturday, but it's not a Sunday. I'm lying to you. Or it could be, I'm tired, so I'm lying down to take a nap. Are those words spelled the same way? Yes. Do they mean two different things? Yes. Another one, rose. Arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose on February 14th. You better remember to buy a rose. Right? Same spelling, same pronunciation means two totally different things. Our language is like this too. When Jesus said this word to Nicodemus, it could have meant either born again a second time or born from above. Let's see what Nicodemus thinks it means. Verse 4. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Uh, let's be clear here. Nicodemus is not stupid. We, we've talked about all that Nicodemus has accomplished. He's, he's no dummy. He, he was incredibly successful. He rose to the top amongst the Jews for a reason. So he's not literally asking Jesus how a person could possibly be born out of his mother's womb a second time. He's, in a sense, voicing the ridiculousness of the idea. Uh, so what is he saying? I think he's saying, that's impossible. Be born again. Jesus, that's impossible. I can't do that. And he's absolutely right. He's exactly right. He can't do that. Neither could you, neither could I. Nobody can make themselves be born a second time. And for that matter, who can make themselves be born the first time? (laughs) How many of you had a big part in that in your life? (laughs) Okay, yep, none of us. Okay. So verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, there's the amen, amen right there again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and the spirit. Uh, This idea of being born of the water and the spirit has been taken to mean a couple of different things. Here's one example. The idea that the spirit part is belief or faith, and the water part is baptism, meaning like water baptism. Uh, This comes from uh, the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, Uh, meaning that people, there are people who believe that you need to um, believe and ask God to forgive you, to save you, and that your salvation is secured or sealed like Ziploc bag, blue, blue and yellow make green seal, and so it's good now when you actually get baptized. So your salvation is not complete, in effect, secured until the baptism occurs. Okay, so generally people who hold that doctrine see this passage and say, Spirit is the faith, water is the baptism. Okay? Uh, just something to bring to mind here. It's very dangerous if we ever bring our doctrinal choices or positions to the text. What I mean by that is, uh, are we reading our doctrines through the lens of Scripture, or are we reading Scripture through the lens of our doctrines? What is the final authority? Doctrinal history or God's Word? Easy, right? The way I ask that is, makes sense, doesn't it? Okay? The Bible is the final authority. The Bible gets to tell us what to believe. It's God's word. Beliefs don't get to tell us what the Bible says. Does that make sense? So if I'm going to put some glasses on so I can see things better, my glasses should not be my belief system so that I can read the Bible better. My glasses should be the Bible so that I can see what I ought to believe better. Does that make sense? That's how we have to come to the scripture. And that is our humble approach. So now a second idea of what this means, the spirit and the water. Uh, The second thought is that being born of the water would be like the physical birth, okay? Uh, Coming from our terminology of when a baby is about to be physically born, what do we say happens? 
the water broke. Okay? So we'd say, okay, well, that's just physical birth then, and then the Spirit is obviously their salvation. That's the second birth. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that the Jews never used that terminology. We say the water broke, and we think about that as the physical birth, but they would not have used that terminology. Okay, so if Jesus, remember, remember who's Jesus talking to here? Not, not right now, me and you, but although right now, yes, me and you. But Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's not an American, who does not live in 2018. He's a Jew who lived then. So he's not going to be thinking, oh yeah, water breaks. That's not what he's thinking, okay? So it turns out there is another option. Truth be told, when I thought there were only two, <laughs> I held to that second view. Because it just made sense to me as an American that the water would break. But turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. Nicodemus is a pro at the Old Testament, right? So Jesus is speaking to him, and what kind of visual things is he going to be thinking about? Probably Old Testament imagery. And so, Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to 27. This is God speaking to his people, Israel. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. By the way, who's doing all of the actions in this passage? I'm going to go with God. I'm going to go with God. I will take you. I will sprinkle you with water. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove the heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Jesus is referring, in referring back to this language of Ezekiel 36, is telling Nicodemus, you cannot accomplish this, Nicodemus. Remember, he just said, how in the world am I supposed to get back up in my mother's womb and get born again? And Jesus says, you can't. Who does? Not the physical birth, by the way, right? Who's going to help you be new? Who's going to take out your old heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh? Who is going to wash you as if with sprinkling of water? Who is going to, who is going to put his spirit? Notice that's a capital S in there, right? the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Who's going to do that? Nicodemus, you're right. You can't do that. You can't do that. This new heart, this new spirit, this cleansing comes from above. It is a work of the grace of God. Nicodemus asks, how can I? And Jesus points him to where God says, I will, I will, I will. And he continues this explanation in the next verse. Verse 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, 
And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The flesh. Things done in the flesh only bring forth more fleshly things. Flesh begets flesh. Things done by the Spirit of God bring forth spiritual things. The flesh cannot produce the spiritual. Only God can do that. Verse 7, do not marvel. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again or born from above. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Simply put, you can tell that it's windy. You can see it blowing things, the wind blowing things around you. You can see the leaves being knocked off the trees and falling to the ground. You can use your muscles and your body to stand against it when it gusts, but you cannot produce it. Uh, You cannot control it. Uh, We simply observe and respond. Okay, now, and using fans today does not count. You understand that? That's artificial wind. We don't produce it. We don't control it. Spiritual birth comes by the work of God, by the will of God, and by the grace of God. We can see it happening. We can see its effects. We know it's true. But God's the worker of that miracle. Uh, The technical term for the new birth that is being spoken of in this passage is regeneration. New birth. Regeneration. Uh, Jesus is saying here that God is the one who causes regeneration to occur. Uh, Taking out our hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh. By the way, I I assembled this like as if my heart came out of my chest or something like that. You know, sometimes we talk about the idea of asking Jesus into our heart. That's not wrong, okay? But do realize that some little children, when, when somebody has a heart transplant, they say, where did Jesus go? Remember, the heart in the Bible is the inner man, okay? When the Bible says the heart or the mind or the spirit or different things like that, it's the inner man. There is a part of us that is physical, material. Our body is going to die, but we are going to live on, right? Amen? The immaterial part of us, the heart. Uh, That is what it's talking about here, okay? Uh, Paul refers to this. Paul refers to this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Where he wrote, we are saved by grace through faith, and it is a gift. I think that it there is referring to faith. It's a gift of God that no man can boast. Well, why wouldn't we be able to boast? Because there's nothing for us to boast of. Verse 10, and we are his workmanship. Who did the work? He did. We didn't do it. He did. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember in Ezekiel 36? I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Ephesians 2 says the same thing. Ezekiel 36, John 3, Ephesians 2, 2 Corinthians 5. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All over the Bible, these passages say the same thing. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we're saved. By grace alone. It's God's work. Through faith alone. None of our fleshly works or efforts earn us anything. In Christ alone. His death on the cross is the only acceptable sacrifice and payment for our sin. To the natural person, in the flesh, this seems foreign. It seems unfair. It seems impossible. 
It's too much to accept. Remember in John 1, verse 12, it says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, Nicodemus, in this passage, being in the flesh, not yet believing, asks. And realize, every time Jesus says truly, truly something, Nicodemus says, how can that be? He says in verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Notice it doesn't say a teacher. Jesus didn't say, aren't you a teacher? Jesus says, aren't you the teacher? Nicodemus isn't just any Pharisee. He's not just any Sanhedrin guy. He is the dude. He is the teacher in Israel. That is his reputation and his position. Aren't you the teacher of Israel? But that didn't matter. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Verse 11. Truly, truly. Oh, there's that again, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus asked these questions twice. Jesus responds with truly, truly, twice. And he's asking these questions because Nicodemus refuses to believe. And realize, Jesus is also using the plural we. We speak, okay? The other testimony, the witness, remember, that we've seen so far in the Gospel of John that the Pharisees also rejected was John the Baptist. And the you that Jesus uses is plural. He's not just talking about Nicodemus. He's talking about the religious leaders, the people who they've been speaking these truths to. Remember up in verse 2 that Nicodemus said, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. And verse 12 says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus just got done teaching Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, you're a teacher. Jesus teaches using earthly terms, using earthly illustrations, and Nicodemus doesn't believe. She says, you're not believing these earthly things. We're not going to be able to go to the next level. And Nicodemus is thought of as the teacher. Now here's Jesus' uh, credentials. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus was known as the teacher of Israel, but Jesus was the real teacher here. His qualifications to teach... Heavenly things, you might ask? How about he's from heaven? (laughs) That's where he's been all this time. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah. And here is his teaching. His main message and his reason for descending from heaven, everything that is coming to, culminating in, this is what Nicodemus and all of us need to understand and believe. Verse 14. As... Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes, and this word believes is the present active in the grammar. This person is believing. This is a 
continuous, present, ongoing thing that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This raising up of the serpent from Moses. This is from Numbers 21, 4 through 9. I'm going to read this for you real quick. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Remember, this is Israel in the wilderness after their freedom from Egypt, going eventually towards the Promised Land. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe. We loathe this worthless food. Notice they said there's no food, and then they also said, We loathe this food. Interesting. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Uh, notice there, the people asked for the serpents to be taken away. It doesn't seem like they were. But God said, make this bronze serpent, set it up on a pole, and if anybody gets bitten, they can look at the serpent on the pole, and they'll live. They'll be healed. Okay, a couple things here. Why a snake? Why a serpent? Uh, why, if we are being bitten by snakes, who were sent as a punishment, as a curse on us because of our sin, why are we looking at a snake for our healing? This is kind of crazy. Uh, what brought the snakes? Sin. And what do we equate with snakes? The curse. Sin and the curse. So when we look at these snakes, we, we think of sin and the curse. And that was what was lifted up on that pole. And so in this passage in John 3, Jesus is compared to this snake? Yes. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When we see Christ lifted up. Remember, Jesus just said in John 3, so, the, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We see our curse, we see our sin being nailed to the cross and destroyed. We see the wrath of God against our sin being exhausted, entirely poured out on Him. Uh, realize the Pharisees and their fleshly thinking were looking to Moses in passages like this. They were looking to Moses, not God's grace by means of calling on the people to look at the serpent. It was all about Moses because it was all about them. This is why we don't read the Old Testament and think that the moral of the story is always just to be like David or just to be like Daniel or to be like Moses because these men are never the heroes of their story. God is always the hero. 
And so ironically or not, guess who John writes as one of the one that lifted up the Son of Man? This is very interesting. In John 8, Jesus tells the Pharisees, when you, Pharisees, have lifted up the Son of Man. Jesus says the Pharisees are the ones that lift him up. Uh, Moses lifted up the serpent, but it was God who was the hero by means of that serpent. And the Pharisees lifted up the Son of Man, but it was God who was the hero by means of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees desperately wanted to be Moses, to be like Moses. And in this comparison, they are. But God never told the people to look to Moses. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, stop looking to Moses. Stop looking to your flesh and your legalism. Jesus is saying, I am the one who will take your curse. I am the one who takes your sin. Look to me for life. Whoever is believing in Jesus Christ, whoever is looking to him, is healed, freed from our curse, freed from the penalty of our sin. And whoever is believing in Jesus, whoever is looking to him as a person who has been born again, a person who has been born from above. Nicodemus was prone to look to Moses because Nicodemus looked to himself. The flesh bringing forth fleshly religion. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, look to me. Isaiah 45, 22, turn, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Now, there are two planes on which we can be thinking from this passage. One is the issue of how a person is regenerated, how a person becomes a Christian. And the other is how one person tells another person the truth of the gospel. You see what I'm saying there? One of them, one plane is the vertical, how a person becomes alive, how a person is has their heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh put in and the spirit put within them and brought to life. And the other is the horizontal, how one person tells another person the gospel. Both of those things are happening in this passage. And realize that Jesus in this passage says that conversion is a work of God by the will of God, by the grace of God. And then tells Nicodemus to look to him, believing in him for salvation. Acts 17 says that all men are commanded everywhere to repent. All men. Uh, Christians have been debating, sometimes in a godly way and sometimes not, about the nature and order of events when a sinner comes to repentance and is saved. Okay, and the main camps, the main camps in this position are generally called Calvinism and Arminianism. You've heard of these things? And there are people all over the spectrum. Okay, there are people all over the spectrum. Don't think of it as just one extreme and the other. There's all kinds of in-betweens. And I have met people who identify as Arminian who are more Calvinist than some Calvinist, okay? So it's all over the place. It's all over the place. I'm pretty sure, though, that the Bible says something about being of, of Paul and Apollos. Things like that. And generally, it's a bad idea. And regardless of how far toward one toward one end or the other that you might fall in this argument, please be careful not to let the opinions and the approval of men sway you 
Okay, we don't believe what we believe because everybody wants us to believe a certain thing. That is the flesh, right? And be careful that we don't believe what we believe because we have to read the Bible through our doctrinal lenses. Remember, that's whoosh, the other way around. Okay? But more than anything else, more than anything else, let's resolve to be a people that believes the Bible and follows Jesus. Amen? Let's be a people who are resolved to believe the Bible and follow Jesus. And regardless of how much of the responsibility you believe falls with God or with man in the, in the event of salvation, Jesus sets the precedent for us here on how we interact with people. Because how much of it are we doing? The people part. God's commanded us to take the gospel. Jesus pointed Nicodemus to the cross and called on him to believe. And as we continue on through John 3, we're going to see that continuing in the next several verses. And that's what you and I need to be doing as well, calling on people to believe. Every person we see looking to Jesus, believing on him, putting all their faith and trust in him, they all have eternal life. That's what we believe. That's what we believe. And that's what this text says. That's what the Bible says. Jesus didn't have this discussion with Nicodemus for a hearty argument, for friendly banter. Uh, Jesus had no desire to intellectually wrestle Nicodemus to the ground and rub it in his face. That's not what this is about. Jesus told Nicodemus these things because Nicodemus needed to stop looking to himself for his salvation. So don't hear me wrong. Doctrine matters. It matters a great deal. What you believe about the doctrine of salvation affects more of our daily lives than we might think. And having a right view of God and a right view of man is critical to our growth and biblical living. However, I believe that we honor God far less by getting caught up in or consumed by arguments or just aligning ourselves within divisions. And we obey and honor God far more by pointing people to Jesus, inviting them to look. Moses lifted up the bronze serpent and the people were told, look and live. What are we called to do? Why am I saved today? Why are you saved today? Because you looked. And when you looked, what did you see? You saw a glorious Savior who humbled himself and took on flesh and dwelt among us with no sin, not deserving to die, hanging on a cross, dying the death that we deserved to, to die taking the wrath of God that we deserve for our own sin on himself so that we could be redeemed. We could be made free. We could have life. That we could become the children of God. We looked at the Christ on the cross and we believe. And I would just venture to say that somebody in some way, shape, or form gave you that message even if you just found a Bible in a trash can, somebody put it there. <laughs> and somebody published it, and somebody sent it out, and you found it, because God's that good. And I'm pretty sure that other people who get saved are going to get saved because somebody who's obeying God told them the truth and said, look and live. Amen? Anybody who gets saved, it's a miracle, because dead people don't make themselves come to life. But God uses us to take the gospel. 
And he has promised to continue to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So guess what? When we share the gospel with people, God's promised to us there are going to be people who hear, who look, and believe, and are saved. It's guaranteed. So we can have all confidence when we share the gospel that God's going to work. Amen? Isn't that exciting? So let that be our focus. It is important to see how big God is, how sovereign he is, how wonderful and miraculous he is. Why? Because we can be really smart and have big heads. No. Bad move. So we'll obey him. So we'll be ready to do whatever he tells us to do because he's God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in the course of this time together in the word that you just got bigger in our minds. I pray that as we reflect on this text, on this passage, on the words of Jesus Christ himself, that we would see your glory. That we would be in awe of who you are. That we would be thankful for your love and your grace that you give to us, that it would move us, compel us out of hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving to do the very thing that you have called us and commanded us to do. God, thank you for saving us. And I ask you to cause us to walk in your ways. And with our heart of flesh and with the spirit within us, God, make us Vessels for honorable use to go and share the gospel with the lost and dying world around us. And thank you for the promise that whether they be people here in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, or in Isabella, Gracia County, uh, or in Papua, Indonesia, and everywhere in between, you are calling a people for yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and you will not fail. And we thank you for that promise and the assurance that we have because you are who you say you are. Help us to walk in light of that this week for your glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.